Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Hello and welcome back to Behind the Knife. My name's Matt Chia. I'm one of the vascular surgery residents at Northwestern, and I'm here today with Carrie Schlick, one of our chief residents in general surgery, headed to Memorial Sloan Kettering for Surgical Oncology next year, and the first author of our first paper today for this Journal Club episode. It's titled, Experiences of Gender Discrimination and Sexual Harassment Among Residents in General Surgery Programs Across the United States. Carrie, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me, and thanks for bringing to light this important topic of discussion. Thanks for being here. Also have here one of my mentors, Yaron Hu, who is a pediatric surgeon at the Lurie Children's Hospital here in Chicago. Dr. Hu, could you please introduce our faculty panelists for today's Journal Club? I am so excited about this particular episode. It's one I've been thinking about since we decided to do this series of podcasts on education. Our first panelist is Dr. Caprice Greenberg, who, not to center myself, but was my mentor when I was a research resident and is like the reason I have this career and these interests and has been really pivotal in my life. She is a surgical oncologist, the surgeon-in-chief and the Moritz Mansberger Distinguished Chair in Surgery at the Medical College of Georgia. And among a huge body of pioneering work, she is the founder of the Academy for Surgical Coaching, a past president for the Association of Academic Surgery, and in 2017 gave her presidential talk on sticky floors and glass ceilings, which I think was a really touchstone moment in academic surgery. Thanks, Yaron. I'm really excited to be here today and talk about this really important topic. And I think it's great that you guys at Northwestern are doing this series um, to help people understand what's happening in education. Our second guest is Dr. Jake Greenberg. So Dr. Jake Greenberg is the GIMS surgeon who specializes in complex hernia and abdominal wall reconstruction and bariatric forget surgery. He is the former PD at the University of Wisconsin at Madison and currently a professor of surgery at the Medical College of Georgia, the director of the Augusta University Health Comprehensive Hernia Center, and assistant dean for operative skills assessment. He also holds many national roles, including the program chair for stages, which is, I think, about to happen, right? He leads the EPA Best Practices Workgroup for the American Board of Surgery, and he's on the board of governors for the American Hernia Society and the Fellowship Council. Again, thank you for having us. I'm just really excited about this conversation. Fantastic. So let's dive into this first paper. And for any who would like to follow along, the link to this paper will be in the show notes. This was published in JAMA Surgery of this past year. Carrie, can you tell us a little bit more about what you were interested in looking into when you started to form the idea for this study? Yeah, thank you. I think as many of you may know, our research group headed by uh, Dr. Hu and Dr. Billamoria has focused a lot on the experience of general surgery residents. So this line of thinking led to a publication in the New England Journal of Medicine where it was identified that residents who reported experiencing mistreatment were associated with reporting burnout. And so we were interested to learn a little bit more um, in detail about what those experiences of mistreatment were like. So the data that are the basis of this study were collected in 2019 following the abside examination, and they were querying residents regarding the specific experiences that they had within that academic year. So it really was within six months worth of time. We identified that over this six-month period, approximately 80% of female residents reported having experienced any type of gender discrimination and approximately 40% of female residents reported experiencing any type of sexual harassment. 
With regard to specific types of gender discrimination that were queried, some common themes were related to standards of evaluation. Over 40% of female residents reported that they perceived different standards of evaluation that they were subject to in comparison to their peers based upon their gender, gender identity. Another quite common experience that I have colloquially heard from many people as well is being mistaken for a non-physician. In our survey, nearly 80% of female residents reported having been mistaken for a non-physician in the past six months. And this is, again, in comparison to 4% of male residents. So there really is a marked difference in experience. Dr. and Dr. Greenberg, how do these data resonate with you? You trained at the same program at the same time and then have gone on to work at faculty in the same institutions at the same time. And I'm curious about whether your experiences were similar. It was very obvious. I think to me, the things that really struck me were that we started dating fairly early in residency and I was uh, a little bit more of a junior resident. I was a PGY2 and she was my PGY5 chief on our vascular surgery service. And we would walk into patient rooms in the morning and where we trained you, you wore short white coats until you were chief. So I was there with probably class two obesity and a short white coat, which is not a very <laughs> complimenting look. And, and Caprice has her long white coat, looks purely professional. And every patient would look at me for their plan in the mornings. And, and I would just point to her and be like, she's the boss. You know, she's the one making decisions about your care. And, and she's the chief resident and really your doctor. I'm just checking boxes and, and doing what she tells me to do. But it was repeated by patient after patient, and it was a, a clear dichotomy. And I think the, the best example came from a time where we were on night float together, and she went to the ICU to advocate on behalf of one of her patients who needed an ICU bed and got into a verbal and nearly physical argument with the, the nurse who was the head of the unit at the time had to be restrained basically by myself and another one of our residents, Doug Smink, who was formerly the program director at the Brigham. And she was sort of sent home on administrative leave. And I just remember thinking to myself, like, that wouldn't have ever happened to me. None of it. Like, if I had gone into the ICU and advocated for my patient, I probably would have had a quick conversation and gotten in the bed. And I think that it was pretty clear to me that she was just being treated differently because she was a female resident advocating in a, in a strong way for a patient who needed it versus a male resident. And I think that was... Something that, that I saw sort of time and time again as a resident and, and have always felt is just unfair and, and inappropriate. Yeah, I think just to build on that. So I, I do think that Jake and I have such a unique perspective on this because of our age difference and because we've been in the same institution so much, right? So I'm five years senior to him in the process. And so as a resident, as a faculty member, like I've always been senior to him in a variety of different settings. And I, I think the examples he gave were good ones. And just to build on that ICU one, you know, I went in and, you know, the nurses, the nurse was sitting there with her feet up and sort of said, well, why don't you tell me about the case and I'll decide if you can have an ICU bed or not. And so, you know, I, I was respectful and gave her the whole story. And then she was like, yeah, no, sorry, we, we have to hold this for the trauma. And I was the trauma chief at the time. And she was telling me that I couldn't have the bed because it was being held for a patient I had just been the primary surgeon operating on. And she just was not listening to me about who I was and sort of what my role was and the fact that I knew all of the patients that she was talking about and just was not having anything of what I was trying to explain to her. And it was, you know, I had a 30-year-old patient that was about to code on the floor that I've been taking care of for months and was really attached to. And so that was where sort of, you know, again, the emotional piece of it came in. But I think Jake's right. That never would have happened to a man, right? It, it just wouldn't have happened. And I think the other place that we really saw it was when we rotated at Children's when he was an intern and I was a clinical four. And 
you know, when we went over there, he was immediately Dr. Greenberg and I was Caprice. And, you know, every time he walked on the unit, they wanted to try to help him. And, you know, whereas I was sort of left to my own devices to try to figure out how to do things. And so I think that, you know, one of the real challenges for for women is, as you were saying, you know, often not being recognized by patients and family members as being a physician. And we can talk about that and some of the interventions for that. But it's also sort of this deferential treatment from staff. Yeah, I think that the experiences that you share, Dr. Greenberg, in many regards are still present to trainees that are happening currently. I think the mentality that you as a female resident have to befriend people and be pleasant and very nice at all times and can't, you know, be curt or short with someone even in the moment of an emergency, I think still persists. I recently had a similar experience where I was the chief resident on the night service and there was a patient on the floor who was in hemorrhagic shock and needed to go to the ICU in order to get blood transfusions. And so I had seen the patient with the junior resident on the floor and we made this assessment and I spoke with the attending and everyone was on board with the plan. And so the patient was transferred to the ICU, receiving a blood transfusion along the way. And when we arrived in the ICU, the nurse stopped the transfusion and said that the patient was hypotensive for other reasons and that it could not be that the patient was bleeding to death and then refused to restart the transfusion until they spoke with the junior resident who then confirmed that, yes, we thought the patient should receive blood transfusions. So I think that, you know, the idea that these things are antiquated or don't happen anymore, I think is incorrect. I've told some people the story and their response is, well, the resident must have done something wrong or they weren't nice or they, you know, were rude in requesting this. And I feel like that wasn't the case, like knowing myself and knowing the moment, I don't think that I was rude. And so I do think that there is a lot of implicit bias that frames the way in which people perceive your decision making and your judgment as a physician. Hearing your story, it it, it just strikes me that the excuse given for it is something about the professionalism of your behavior and the idea that you should have to go above and beyond that to advocate for a patient who desperately needs something that you have decided, I think it gets in the way of patient care, which is at the center of what we're trying to do. Being at Northwestern and being surrounded by a number of really fantastic female colleagues, their experience has to be so much different than the experience that I get going through training. And isn't residency hard enough as it is? And and I think, you know, in my role as program director, I saw time and time again, the female residents, they learn workarounds for this, right? Like when you're in the operating room, you talk to the scrub and circulator and you ask them about their weekend and about their plans and about about personal stuff and and really have to be sort of treated as as a friend and you pull your own gloves and do your own thing to try and help. Whereas the, the male residents can kind of go in and say, and just set up the patient for surgery and and go forward. And so I think there is sort of this double standard and, and just a different way that people are treated and, and have to go about to accomplish the same amount of work. When I was an intern, I had a co-intern who was an NFL player. And I just remember, like, I got along with the nurses fine. It wasn't that they ever refused to do anything. But I remember one night we were both on uh, and we walked to the trauma floor together. And all of a sudden, all these nurses just come like swanning out of patient rooms like, can we help you? And I was like, we're you know, it's not even like just negative treatment. It's like the absence of positive treatment, I guess. Uh, it, and it's not just nurses either. It's administration as well. So, you know, again, I had an incident when I was in Wisconsin and, you know, I was a full professor there on faculty and I had an issue with my parking. And a member of the administrative staff said to me, well, maybe you should have your husband call. It might help if a surgeon calls on your behalf. And I, I, I was like speechless. I was like, I, I don't even know how to respond to that. 
And, you know, it just, it, it, it's, it's, again, it's just ingrained into how people think and, and, and how do we get to the point where we sort of can, can switch some of those really hardwired ways that, that we think about, about people's roles. The other point I wanted to make, which was building on the ways that people are perceived as being harsh. You know, one of the studies that I have wanted to see and have talked to multiple people about, I've never seen published in a lot of institutions, people will use the patient safety reporting system as a way to sort of get back at folks for bad behavior. And so I'm really curious if there are gender differences in how often those reports are made against, quote unquote, against residents based on gender. You know, I know anecdotally, Jake has certainly felt like as program director, he heard different stories based on gender. I had a number of instances in the trauma bay where a radiology tech and a nurse on separate occasions said they felt physically threatened by me during a trauma resuscitation. And like I, my guess is I was very impatient about them getting the x-ray machine in and getting the x-ray because the patient was a level one trauma. <laughs> and, and coming from me, that felt threatening as opposed to, I think if that had come from Matt or Jake, that would have been expected and they would have come in and done the x-ray and left and never thought twice about it. Right. I mean, so it, it, it was always hard to tell, right? Be, at, at, well, just one from the initial, like completely anecdotal review of it, there were definitely more about female residents than there were about. So just from a numbers standpoint, there was that. And, and whenever I got one, I, I would try and read through it and think to myself, is this a complaint I would get about a male? Right. If there, if the exact situation was what it was, would I be even hearing about this? So I think, and I think one, you have to always remember that that's one person's side of the story and you have to get the other. But I do think that there is very likely to be a difference in the number of those reports. I think there is a difference in the, the types of things you get reported to, right? As a female, that's anecdotal. Like, I remember once I had a safety report filed against me as a fellow for the face I made when somebody said something. For the face you made? (laughs) You sort of talked a little bit, Jake, about what you say when you're in the room and they're referring to the wrong person as the boss. But like, what do you say to the ICU nurse when when they're in this argument and other than physically restraining one of them? You know, like, what what can we do? And what did you do as a program director? So I, I think as much as you can, you have to be an ally. So when I would be working with residents and the patient or someone would call them nurse or call them something that they weren't, I would correct them on the spot and say, actually, they're a physician, they're a doctor, they are working as part of our team. We all work together and I trust them implicitly to make the right decision. So I think I think when there are problems like that, you have to stand up and, and account for them. And that, and that goes with gender, that goes with race, that goes with with everything. You know, we're, we've been focusing on gender because that was the, the point of this topic or this paper. But, you know, I think underrepresented minorities and especially underrepresented female minorities have an even harder path through all of this because they get the bias in two different ways. And so I think every group that is that is not a majority has different issues around this and, and needs to be supported the best way that we possibly can. And I think this applies to a whole bunch of different places where bias comes in is that we really have to be thinking about systemic interventions that can help, right? And I think about the patient one in particular, because I, I struggle a lot with that because I've been, you know, in the hospital with my parents or with family members where they don't have any idea who people are coming in the room, right? And they may, you may or may not have on your white coat. You might be wearing fleece. And so they're trying to take these contextual clues to know who's coming in their room. But at the end of the day, the wrong assumptions get made. 
you know, here they actually have tried to institute, and I, I'm not sure how successful it's been, but color coding of scrubs even, where you, different people who are in different roles wear different color scrubs or have, you know, again, those those identifications on their tag so that it makes it really easy for patients when you walk in the room to see the tag and says doctor to know that, you know, this person is a doctor. I don't view it as being, in most cases, expressly malicious, right? I don't think they have malintent. It just is, it just is society. It's, it's a really hard problem to fix because it's ingrained in everything that we do from, from birth. But I like the way that you describe some ways that we can address this systematically because being able to be present and to advocate for our female colleagues is very helpful when you happen to be there in the moment. But it, it, it seems like those approaches take a second best approach to something that can address it proactively, can start to change the culture, especially from within, as, as you say. If we can have the people who do know who we are, who do know what our role is, respect everyone for whom they are, not just for whether they fit within our archetype of what the surgeon should be. No, I think that's right. I, I think we need to kind of get our house in order, right? Because the nurses and the staff know who we are. They know who they're talking to and they know, again, for patients, I think sometimes it just comes from a place of just being overwhelmed and scared and not really knowing. Carrie's story in particular, right? And my story in the ICU, like as a resident and, and now, like I've never asked to be treated better than anyone else that I work with, right? I completely believe in the flattened hierarchy and that we're all part of the same team. And as Matt said, right, the patient is at the center of everything we do. But I know from my own experience, and I know from Carrie and your own experience, there are plenty of times when we have not been treated even as an equal by the people in the hospital. We've been treated as less than. And that's not okay. So Carrie's story, we used it for a cultural complications M&M. I don't know if other people know what that is, but it's basically you present a case of bias during M&M and you discuss sort of what a microaggression is or there's some didactics around it and then there's discussion time. And afterwards, there are a remarkable number of people who are like, that would never happen here. She clearly picked like a fake case. And so how do we make people see? To Caprice's point about like getting your house in order, like how do we even show that it's an issue or demonstrate it's an issue to, to people for whom that's not their experience? I think you have to facilitate these conversations, right? And they are challenging and difficult conversations. And I think a, a lot of times we don't necessarily, like I don't have the right vocabulary for it. I think the next generation, like the current generation of residents is way better about talking about this stuff and than, than we are, than I am for sure. Like even, I always don't know if I'm saying the right thing or the wrong thing, but I think these are conversations that you have to have so that you can shine a light on different people's perspective and different people's experiences. Because for me, as a white male walking through the hospital, my experience is starkly different than everyone else's. And mine is, I think, undeniably probably the easiest. And I think, you know, if, if I weren't married to Caprice and had seen all the things that I saw her go through, I, I'd probably just be in this blissfully ignorant bubble and, and be okay with it. But, but I think you have to you have to really force people into these challenging situations and complications so that they can see what it's like for others that aren't like them. And I think like the cultural complications is a great example. And I think you have to be explicit that these are cases that happened at our own institution within the last, you know, three to six months so that people can't say, oh, that's from 10 years ago or that must be somewhere else. Right. And 
the thing, the feedback that I got about my presidential address and why people felt like it was effective was because it was that mix of sort of anecdotes and stories, but with data to sort of back up like why this is happening or how this is happening or how often this is happening. And so I, I think we have to find that sort of sweet spot of sharing experiences qualitatively, but then also finding ways to, because we're all scientists at to some degree is where where is the data to sort of the evidence that shows that this is not a one-off story that you're hearing from Carrie about her experience in the ICU. It's like, this is actually like relevant, right? We have we have three women on this podcast and two of us had almost identical experiences, you know, two decades apart in ICUs. One of my favorite findings in our study is the one about absite scores. What does everyone make of the fact that women are more likely to report experiencing gender discrimination if they are high scores on the app site, but men are more likely to report it if they are low scores? I think that is that just goes with typical male ego and confidence. I think that's largely the explanation for it, right? We did a study at UW that looked at EPA, so the assessments on entrustable professional activities. And we found that, interestingly, while the faculty scored male and female residents similarly at each PGY level for for EPAs, female residents generally under self-assessed. So when they uh, performed self-assessments, they assessed themselves lower than uh, the male residents did by about the whole PGY level. And so I think that gender stereotype that males have a ton of confidence plays out that way. And so when they underperform on the ad site and it's a threat to their ego, they feel discriminated against. This discussion of absite is a great discussion of resident assessment, which can come in many factors other than standardized tests. I think it's an opportunity to transition into the next paper for today's journal club. It's titled Effects of Gender Bias and Stereotypes in Surgical Training, written by Dr. Myers et al. and published in JAMA Surgery 2020. This study reported the results of a randomized clinical trial of general surgery residents where they were exposed to stereotype threats right before performing the fundamentals of laparoscopic surgery test. The specific threat that residents were exposed to was the stereotype of male-dominated surgeons. Some residents read research abstracts reporting that women performed worse on laparoscopic skills compared to men, which was the stereotype threat trigger. Others read abstracts that stated that there was no difference in skills by gender, which was intended to be protective against stereotype threat. The results of the study were nuanced and very interesting, but also importantly discussed in an invited commentary by the doctors Greenberg. Could you tell us some of your initial thoughts upon reading this paper? I mean, I, I, in my mind, the most interesting finding was the fact that women really overall weren't impacted by stereotype threat, but it was actually the men where you saw the decrease in performance uh, with stereotype threat. And to me, it really underscored that loss of privilege and how that had the potential to impact performance. And that, you know, again, we've We've sort of grown up with this our whole lives, and I think we've become resilient in many ways as women at sort of dealing with it and not letting it impact our performance. Whereas for men, this whole loss of privilege thing is kind of new, right? And so I think that that we are seeing impacts from that. I think what's actually really interesting is the stereotype threat to men was that their performance was equal to women. It wasn't an abstract in which it was worse. Well, it's that loss of privilege, right? It's that loss of your superior I mean, but I think that's why it's so aptly named and why I really liked this paper, the idea that stereotype threat, I think that that language to me was actually quite new, that if you have these ingrained 
patterns of behavior and structures upon which you judge people, that something that runs counter to that can be personally threatening to your own construction of yourself, your own validity of how good your performance is and where you fit within the hierarchy of your workplace or your academic identity. And I thought it was fascinating to even hypothesize that such a brief stereotype threat. I mean, we, we're all we're all very quick at reading abstracts, I think, reviewing so many of these for conferences and the like. But the idea that your measurable objective performance in something like FLS could be altered by a stereotype threat as brief as reading an abstract, I thought it was a really fascinating study design. I think it's interesting, though, because to your point, Dr. Greenberg, about how women who are surgeons are sort of spent their entire career dealing with the idea that they may be perceived as not being equivalent to men. And so that may make them less susceptible to threat, I think is really interesting because it, I think it'd be fascinating to know what the inner monologue of people are. Like if you could compare what women are thinking while they're operating to what men are thinking while they're operating, I think that would be fascinating. Can we see if, you know, is there something different going on in their head? Like are women motivating themselves or being like, I can do this, I can do this in men? I, I don't know. I don't know what they're saying, but I think that it would be fascinating to know that. I did this panel session at the ACS virtually on inequities in surgery with Julianne Souza and Melina Kibbe and Heather Yeo. And we just got the feedback from it. And it is wild what people will put in anonymous comments, but... I'm just bringing up to today regarding the loss of privilege. Like there are a lot of white men who are worried about being boxed out and think it's already happening. And this idea that it's a zero sum game, but like, how do we bring them along? Yeah. And I, I think that idea of sort of loss of privilege is the point here that's really key, right? Because nobody's interested in boxing out white men. Like the interest really is in leveling the playing field and make sure that everybody has a chance. And that whoever gets the position or gets the award or gets promoted is the person who is the most qualified and has the right characteristics and is the best candidate, right? And so this is, again, a place where I think there really needs to be systemic approaches to making sure that we are doing this in a, in a systematic, systemic way that makes sure that biases are taken out of the equation as opposed to different biases being put into the equation. You know, and, and there's so many best practices around this, right? Like if you're on a search committee, before you start interviewing candidates, you should outline like what are the characteristics of a successful candidate? What are the markers that you're going to use to be indicators of people having those characteristics that might be a little bit more objective? What are the questions that you're going to ask that are going to be standard so that it's not going to be, a, you know, quote unquote, best fit, which is how we often make decisions. Regarding opportunity in residency, though, like I think Sherry Meyerson published a paper using simple data showing that women are given less autonomy than men. And it was a great article by Sherry, and I think it, it, it casts a light on a very important topic, interestingly. So when we looked at that at UW, we didn't find the same thing. And I think potentially that may be a little bit of the makeup of our faculty. The faculty at EW was very evenly divided. It's about 50% female, 50% male. And so those results were actually not replicated when we sort of looked at this again using EPA data. So I think it probably has a lot to do with, again, not just the makeup of one of those groups, but both groups, right? Because it's the interaction between male to female, female to male, male to male, female to female that probably plays a, a strong role in that. And I think the key is, as Caprice mentioned, was that 
it, it should be equitable across all of those different types of interactions. Like in theory, none of that should matter, right? You should get the autonomy that you deserve based on your ability to complete the task at hand. We're completely regardless of gender, ethnicity, everything. I think, unfortunately, that's still not the world that we live in, but that's that's certainly the ideal. I think this is a great example of where equality and equity might not be the same thing, right? So the fact that the attending score residents the same regardless of gender, but women score themselves a whole PGY level lower than men do, right? So what does that mean? That means that men are going to be more aggressive about grabbing the bovie. Men are going to be more likely to stand on the right side of the table. Men are going to be more likely to make the assumption that they're going to be doing more independently in the case than the female resident might be based on their sort of over or under assessment of their own skill level. And this is why I think that in many ways it has to be incumbent upon the faculty members and the leaders to recognize that a male resident, a female resident may need different ways that we interact with them in order to get them the same level of autonomy, right? You might have to push the female resident a little bit harder to do more of the case, whereas the male resident is going to potentially naturally feel like he has that right. And and again, we haven't we haven't we haven't thought about it that way, right? We haven't we've we've thought about we haven't thought about it as the responsibility of the leaders or the attending or the person who's in that position to understand what the needs are of the person they're working with, as opposed to just well, if they'd asked me, I would have let them do more, but they didn't. As sort of the person in charge, that's actually your responsibility to adapt to what your learner needs. I love that framing. Not blaming the victim. So you talked about how that wasn't the case at Wisconsin, but what about moving to a new institution? Congratulations on becoming, uh, I actually don't know the number. What number, Jared? Third race. Women, Jared. I don't know that. I don't, I don't know offhand either. It's in the 30. 20s. Isn't though. it 30? 30, 20s, 30, something like that. Sir, yeah. The first in the state of Georgia, for sure. So, I, you know, I have to say I had some trepidation about moving, especially sort of to the south where my bias from being from up north was that, you know, this would be much more of kind of a good old boys club, like, you know, again, less women sort of in positions. And, and I think some of it is, is when you come in as a chair and in as visible of its a position as I came into, like everybody kind of knew who I was. So I, I haven't had a ton of it. I will say I was in a meeting recently where I made some sort of clinical assessment of a situation and and a male from another specialty was like, I'm, I'm sorry, what's your name? I am so impressed that you made that assessment. And the person next to them was like, dude, she's a chair of surgery. Of course you made that assessment, right? But, but that was sort of, you know, I've been here for eight or nine months. That was one of the first sort of really blatant times that that had happened. And I think it's because of coming into a visible position where people knew kind of who I was. I think Wisconsin was a really neat place, though, because not only did we have 50 percent women, but we had them. I, I think at one point it was over 50 percent of people in leadership positions in the department were women. So often when you have that 50 50, it's, you know, all the full professors are men or most of them and most of the assistant professors are women. At Wisconsin, it was really sort of very well represented throughout all of the different levels. And I think that just made it a very different environment. Do you think that your leadership style has changed because it's a different environment where there are fewer women in positions of authority? I have been told so many times since I moved down here, wow, you have a really different style. I, I get that a lot. 
But I don't think that I've changed my style from what it was at previous institutions. I think that women adapt the ways that they interact with people throughout their careers sort of out of necessity. And I talked a little bit about this in my presidential address where, you know, those behaviors that you had early on of being able to accomplish what you wanted to accomplish by being friends with people, right, which is incredibly important. Like you, at some point, you can't be friends with everybody in the entire organization. And so you have to come up with other ways that you can still be effective, but also stay true to some of the gender expectations that people might have around what your style is going to be. And it, 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 it takes, it takes nuance and it takes sort of evolution, I think. Can we talk a little bit about the work life thing? I think every time we hear one of those like career capstone speeches by a man, it's usually thanking their wife for like carrying that entire load. And so one of the things I think is so refreshing and such an amazing example about you guys is it shows that that's not what it takes. And so, but that said, like, um, I'm sure it's not that easy being a power duo. And I'm curious about how you make it work at work and at home. Yeah, so I have to say that I give Jake an incredible amount of credit for this. He has been a partner from the beginning when it came to things at home. And and I feel like we really do approach things with sort of shared responsibility, although based on our personalities and our skill sets, we definitely have a distribution of workload based on what we may be better or not as adept at. But I think it's it's hugely important that especially the male in a relationship understand and be willing to be that partner because it is counter to what some of those traditional gender roles might be. You know, I think the, the other thing that helps a lot is to be able to have two surgeons income so that we have enough resources to be able to outsource a lot of activities that other people may not outsource and may spend their time taking care of at home so that the things that we do spend our time doing at home are the things that really bring us joy. Yeah, I think we've both had the the sort of same view that maybe the most important metric in life isn't money, it isn't relationships, it's time, right? That time you need to spend doing the things that you want to do and for all the stuff you don't, then throw money at it. So I think we have always had sort of a shared approach to our parenting, to to who's you know home or taking care of the kids when that's needed. And for the stuff that we don't want to do in Wisconsin, that was shovel snow here at lawn care. So that's a dramatic difference. But I hire that stuff out, right? I would much rather be in the hospital fixing another hernia than, than ever mowing a lawn. And because if I mow the lawn, it's time that I'm not at work or more importantly, time that I'm not with our kids or with Caprice. So I'd much rather be inside watching someone else do that or, or doing something with them. And so I think we've always had that that sort of similar view and just work together to do all the stuff that you need to do to have uh, a happy and healthy family and then everything else you outsource. But I also think it takes a lot of planning too, right? We have been very intentional about the places that we have lived, right? Madison, Wisconsin, Augusta, Georgia. You know, we can drive 10 minutes reliably, not worry about getting caught in traffic and be able to make it to our kids' games and go out to, you know, parent-teacher conferences and sort of do the things that we need to do. Or, you know, when we went to Wisconsin, we very purposefully set up our schedules for the week so that one of us had academic time when the other one was clinical and vice versa, so that one of us had meetings that would be canceled as opposed to clinical responsibilities if our nanny got sick or if there was something that came up with the kids where we needed to have that flexibility. And and so you really do kind of have to be just intentional about the ways that you design your life. 
And then, you know, the most important person in our family right now, arguably, is Jules, who is our nanny. I mean, she is just this amazing human being who moved with us from Wisconsin to Georgia. And I think had she not come with us, you know, I'm not sure we would have survived the transition. It's really hard to move three kids to a new state in the middle of a pandemic. But, you know, having those people who are a part of your life that you love and that you respect and that are, you know, your true partners in in helping with your kids is, is hugely important. I think one of the things that actually set us up really well for this was that when we had our first kid, Caprice was finishing up her surgical oncology fellowship and I was in my research years and, and had finished a master's in education. And she had like four weeks of maternity leave, like some dreadfully small amount. But it happened to to then end when I had like six weeks in between finishing the master's and going back to being a clinical resident. So for those six weeks, she was the fellow and I was actually a stay-at-home dad with our firstborn. And it really kind of showed me what, one, what that's like to have to do, right? It's an incredibly hard job. And I think it set us up to to realize that if we're going to make this work and have more than just this one child, that we're going to have to do this together. This cannot rely on just one person and that you have to really approach things as a team. And I think that the American Board of Surgery and, and institutions now are very cognizant of that and are really working on parental leave policies that are much more in keeping with getting people home and having them have more time with their, their babies when they first have, which I think is incredibly important for both male and female trainees. I think that equity piece like that, having men take paternity leave and taking it in a meaningful way, right? Because there are times when that can be a source of inequity if it's not done appropriately. But it it, it takes that sort of bias off of women who take maternity leave if everyone takes it when they have a child, right? It becomes normalized across both genders. But then it also gives men that that feeling of of being involved and in being that primary parent and knowing what that means and developing that bond with their children in a way that it's really hard to do when you get a day off or even a week off. Yeah, I think that education is so incredibly important. Even I kind of bought into this idea that it was going to be like 12 weeks off until I actually did it and was like, why do people do this? It's all so hard. I'm never doing this again until next year. But I guess what I was sort of also getting at is sometimes you have competing priorities between the two of you in terms of career decisions, right? It doesn't always perfectly align. And I guess what my experience has been is I think most men would say like, yeah, I support gender equity, but they don't realize that it costs some sacrifice on their part. Yeah, I would say we're kind of living that, right? So we were super fortunate when we moved to Wisconsin and that I was the one who was recruited to Wisconsin because Jake was just finishing up his fellowship at the time and I was already on faculty. But when I went to look at the job, I realized that the opportunity for Jake was at least as good as it was for me, if not better. I would argue that when we went there, it probably ended up being a little bit of a better opportunity for Jake than for me, but it was great for both of us. And it got us back to the Midwest and to a smaller city and and aligned with many of the things we wanted to accomplish in our personal life. I think as I started looking at cheer jobs, things got really complicated for us, right? Because it's one thing to be in the same department when you're both faculty and it's another to be in the same department when one of you is the chair. And for us, we had learned the difference between living in Boston and living in Madison and really were hesitant to move back to a large city and really wanted to be in a smaller city. We recognized that there was probably going to have to be some sacrifice on Jake's part in terms of, you know, he was really in 
what he considered his dream job in Wisconsin. And so to move from that to a position where, you know, for lots of reasons, he's in neurosurgery and, you know, he is not the program director and he is not in certain roles that if I weren't the chair here, he probably would be in. And so he has made some, I think, pretty significant sacrifices in coming here. And that is really, really hard. You know, we I got the chair job I wanted and we moved our family to a city that was about the same size as Madison and all of these things aligned for us. Um, and and I would say for Jake, he probably took a step back or he definitely took a step back. Trying to figure out how to navigate that is extraordinarily challenging. And for us, again, it's a little bit easier, I think, than some other couples just because I am five years further along and I also intend to retire about 15 years younger than Jake does. <laughs> and so that gives me a good 20-year lead in terms of who's going to go first, right? And then once I'm done with my chair job, then we'll go wherever he's going to be chair. I think that's fairly accurate. I mean, I think that at the end of the day, like, there's there's titles that you have on paper and things that you're given, but the the, the real thing is, like, just go there and find the opportunities. Right. And so I think whenever you get to whatever job you end up in, your job may look very different a couple of years into it because things change and things happen and you figure out what's going to work. Did you always have that, I guess, perspective? I don't know. I, I feel like it's so ingrained for men to like achieve, 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 that it can be hard to be like, I'm going to let someone else go first. And how, how did you guys come to that? I'm very biased in this, but I think Jake has been pretty unique throughout our relationship and his ability to do that. I think there are other men who have that capacity, but I'm not sure that it's all of them or even the majority. But I feel incredibly guilty about it because I say all the time to him, I'm like, I think your professional life has been much more challenging because you've been married to me. So I, I have a different perspective on that. I mean, I actually think that I've had much more opportunities that I potentially wouldn't have had by being married to you. And so I always sort of carry this chip on my shoulder that am I getting this because I earned it or am I getting this because I share the last name? as my spouse, who everyone actually wants to work with. I don't know. Maybe that's that's helped me to be more driven to do stuff, maybe. But I, I always worry the opposite. Like, I worry that I'm being given opportunities that I wouldn't have otherwise had. Again, like, this is where I think Jake is really unique in his personality and his confidence and sort of all of these things that make him him, that he is truly, genuinely, like, supportive of me and has just been a remarkable partner in all of this. I, I, I just feel so incredibly fortunate to, to have found him and to have him as my partner because I could never have, you know, been a chair before the age of 50 with three kids. Like, that doesn't happen very often for women, right? I think it's a testament to him more than me. I think the two of you are both an amazing staple and couple for all of us. No, I mean, I am pretty awesome. I think we should keep focusing on that. <laughs> I think it's been an interesting ride because I also think that a lot of people sort of know a lot more about our personal life (laughs) than most people in surgery. And it's because we have tried to be vocal about kind of what has worked for us and what hasn't. And I think where we've had missteps and where we could have been done things better or differently, we hope that people can learn from our experiences. And we certainly reach out to people who are senior to us who have gone through these situations as well. I mean, I think nationally we have some, you know, remarkable couples that we're able to tap into for support. One story that I really enjoy that maybe we can squeeze in, like how you said on the last name Greenberg. 
So, uh, yeah, I mean, I think at the time we were living in Boston and I used the analogy, like you don't see anyone in the Red Sox running out there in like a Yankees uniform. Like you should, you know, we should have one name so that our family all has the same name. And Caprice said, well, maybe we should hyphenate it into Christian Greenberg. And I said, well, that's not ideal from a variety of different religious perspectives. And then she decided, all right, well, why don't we just combine them both into one name being Christberg? I'm like, that's way worse. That's completely wrong. And so I think we ended up just with Greenberg. I liked Christberg. That would have been really... I think Christberg would be unique. be unique. I think the conversation was just, it was great. It was awesome to just hear the dynamic and to, like you say, to, to hear you being vocal about what it's like to be a disruptive duo in the culture of surgery, a something that maybe engenders stereotype threat for some people out there, but is also, for me, an inspirational example of what the future of surgery can look like. And I think that hearing about your experience and the ways that we can focus, shed light, and ultimately change our field is something that I think all of the listeners are going to really enjoy. Well, thanks for the opportunity of joining you. It's been fun and great to see you all. And hopefully people can learn a little bit from our experiences. We certainly have an enormously long way to go. And I think gender is just one small sliver of the challenges that we face, not only as a discipline, but also as a society. No, I mean, I think the future is incredibly bright, right? Like at the end of the day, I still think we have like the best job in the world. Our job is about helping patients and and being someone who's always been focused on education, it's helping people to then take care of patients themselves. And there's like an, a, a never ending well of inspiration from the next generation, right? Like the students and the applicants that we see now are just incredible people. And, and I think that, that the world of surgery uh, and the future of surgery is incredibly bright. And I think as a resident, it's really amazing to have people that we can look up to who we really are riding on the tails of folks like both um, Dr. and Dr. Greenberg. I feel like I'm going to ride those coattails for the rest of my group. And I'll also ride Dr. Who's coattails. That's exactly what it is and what it should be. Standing on the shoulders of giants. Go. Definitely. Well, special thanks to Dr. Greenberg and Dr. Greenberg for joining us today for the conversation. You can find them on Twitter at, at Caprice Greenberg and at Georgia Hernia. You can follow Carrie on Twitter at, at Carrie Schick. Your own at at your own who and myself at Chia underscore MD. Be sure to follow Behind the Knife at Behind the Knife on Twitter and wherever you get your podcasts. And thank you all for tuning in. Bye now. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day.